Welcome. This is Barry Baines from Baines Law, a legal miscellany where we regularly podcast about cases and legal issues, as well as talking to professionals and others who have experience of our legal system. Today's guest is a leading criminal defense barrister with over 25 years experience who has represented clients in some of the most complex, serious and headline-grabbing cases. He is a QC who is also a popular writer and commentator on topical legal issues for national publications, television and radio. Presenter of the five-part 2020 BBC television series Crime, Are We Tough Enough? He is also the author of Justice on Trial, a book which challenges everything we think we know about crime and punishment in Britain and presents radical solutions for our broken and failing justice system. We extend a warm welcome to Chris Dorr, QC. Chris, thank you very much for giving up your time to talk to us today. No problem. Good to meet you. In your book, Justice on Trial, you deal with what you describe as dysfunctional prisons, pointless drug laws and unnecessary punishment of children. In that context, I wonder if I may start by asking you about the huge backlog of cases in the criminal justice system. As I understand it, there are around 60,000 cases outstanding in the the Crown Court and 350,000 in the Magistrates' Courts, with no serious proposals for doing anything about it. Do you have any views on this? Yes, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Your numbers are, are, are very close to the current um, sort of numbers that, that are in the backlog right now, and, and they're not getting any smaller anytime soon. Um, my view is that, you know, the state of the criminal justice system is, is, a, is a sort of an example of, of, of a national emergency, just as there are national emergencies across the whole range of our public sector uh, institutions, in particular the health service, but also other parts of our kind of national life. And the difference is that we just haven't prioritised the uh, justice system in the way that we prioritise those other things. So we haven't flooded the justice system with resources. We haven't, for example, you know, brought back retired judges or increased the recruitment of uh, recorders and, and, and judges at the, at the other end of the spectrum to just to increase the number of courts that can sit and deal with this backlog. But we also haven't addressed the fundamental issue that really we criminalise far too many people. And that's one of the reasons why our justice system is so overburdened is because it's full of cases that in my view, as you as you know, as you've read the book, but in my view, shouldn't be there at all. So we, we, you know, we have an opportunity, actually, we have a sort of almost generational opportunity, if we wanted to take it, to strip away a lot of the unnecessary cases that are that, that, are, that are really have no place in the justice system, particularly young people, particularly those who are suffering with mental health problems who make up such a large proportion of our criminal justice system, uh, but also in the meantime to start bringing through a new generation of judges and, and, and bring in emergency measures, whatever it takes to get these cases through. There's no sign of any of those things happening at the moment, and that's going to mean that this problem continues for many years to come. Yes, indeed. I mean, in the past, so often, I know when I prosecuted for a while, one of the measures was just to drop cases. Yes, and that would be a wise move. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, the CPS 
did change their uh, charging standards during certainly the first year of lockdown and said that, you know, we're going to sort of, we're going to rule out cases that are really at the bottom end and really marginal cases, purely out of the sort of pragmatic realization there weren't enough people to deal with them. There weren't enough CPS lawyers at the time, even, even at, if you don't um, discount the number for, for those who were out um, isolating or, or ill with COVID itself, we already didn't have enough even before that. So, so the CPS took a fairly pragmatic view, but unfortunately it wasn't quite pragmatic enough because the backlog continued to mount and continues to, um, to be a problem to this day. But, but I mean, you make a very good point, which is, you know, why are so many cases that result often in non-custodial sentences or short prison sentences, which actually make ultimately the crime problem worse? Why are they still being brought and just added to this mountainous backlog, which, which has got no end in Yes, yeah, so many cases, particularly in the magistrates' court, end up with no real disposal, don't they? An enormous number of conditional discharges, for example. Well, there's a large number of those. Uh, and, you know, you have to question whether they really needed to be taken to court at all, uh, or whether, in fact, they could have been dealt with either by a just an informal warning or, or, or a formal caution. Um, but, this, you know, for me, the, the biggest problem in our in our kind of revolving door justice system is that we are, you know, magistrates are handing out short sentences of several months. And those sentences are known to be the least effective in reducing reoffending and the most effective in increasing reoffending. So, you know, there are these sort of systemic problems with our entire approach to sentencing, to charging decisions, to, you know, the criminalization of activity, which is really kind of marginal in terms of its of its criminality. And in many other countries probably wouldn't be criminalized and certainly wouldn't result in charges and prison sentences. So I think and, you know, th these are all contributing to, to this overall problem that, you know, cases are being delayed. I have cases being delayed for, for years and years, some cases going off into 2023, 2024, you know, and, and you kind of have this complete disconnect between the events that give rise to the prosecution in the first place and the trial. You know, there's such a huge gap between the two that, that it's, it's difficult to see in some cases how, how, how you're ever going to get a really fair trial for either side, for victims and witnesses, or for defendants, because you know the passage of time is 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 almost inimical to to, to the to, to to the you know pursuit of justice. You know, it's, it's a cliche that justice delayed is justice denied. There are issues and nothing's being done about it. The government's indicated it's going to implement provisions of the Criminal Justice Act 2003 to permit magistrates uh, to impose sentences of up to twelve months. So I take it your reaction to that proposal wouldn't be favourable either in the circumstances. No, and, and the purported reason for that is that, it, that somehow it's believed that that's going to reduce the backlog in the Crown Court. And I just don't understand the logic of that at all. Because if magistrates are given uh, greater sentencing powers, then that increases the incentive amongst those who wish to stand trial to elect Crown Court trial, if it's an either way offence, as it would be uh, in this case. So, so, first, so it kind of incentivizes people to take the case to the Crown Court. But also, you know, the more sentences of imprisonment particularly getting towards that 12-month point that magistrates impose, 
the more appeals against sentence and indeed possibly conviction that there will be from the magistrates court to the crown court where where the sentence is is heard, is is heard and reviewed on appeal so that will increase the workload of the crown court because inevitably you know the more long sentences in magistrates terms that there are the more appeals there'll be so i just don't understand where the logic of this comes from that you supposedly it's going to save something like you know on each thousands of different days of or thousands of days of crown court time a year i just don't see any scientific basis for that in my view at best it will be neutral in terms of the impact on the crown court and at worst it will increase the crown court's backlog and increase the workload of the crown court so i just i just think it's an it's it's just not the answer i mean i gave you some of the answers earlier you can't get away from the fact that we don't have enough courtrooms sitting to deal with these cases and tinkering around with who's going to pass sentence and how much magistrates can pass in terms of sentence isn't going to make any difference to that so it's just a bad idea Yes, exactly. And the appeals against conviction, of course, in the Crown Court take place by way of rehearing. Exactly. So, you know, you, you, you have a trial that may have taken a day or a day and a half or sometimes even longer in the Magistrates Court. And that will have to be reheard in its entirety with all the witnesses in the Crown Court. Or, as I say, you'll have people who say, well, you know, if I could get if I could get 12 months, even if I have a trial here, then I may as well elect to go to the Crown Court, where at least I've probably got a better chance of being found not guilty, which statistically is, is is the case so you just might end up with this perverse incentive for people to take cases to the crown court that might have stayed in the magistrates court so it's 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 um i just think you know the other thing is of course that not just appeals but you know are we going to get more committals for sentence from the from the magistrates court and you know i i just feel like it's a badly thought out policy there's no evidence that it will work and it's just an announcement being made you know to curry favor with the with the magistrates because the magistrates association have said they're in favor of this I'm not entirely clear why they are, uh, uh, but but they are. Um, but but mainly, it's just a gimmick that, that 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 is, you know, it's an announcement for the sake of an announcement. And not only is it shortage of staff, is it? Uh, it's also uh, the number of court centres that have been closed in the last ten years has been an enormous number. There was a parliamentary answer given today. I think you may have probably seen it. Hundreds of them, yeah. H hundreds of magistrates' courts and, and, and a significant number of Crown Courts. And not only is it court centres being closed, but it's lack of capacity within court centres. So even if you have a court centre, a large Crown Court centre that might have 12 or 14 or even more sometimes courtrooms, that doesn't mean they're all in action on any given day because you know set aside the you know the, the staff who are isolating and the covid impacts which have which have hit hit the court system so heavily we just don't have enough judges we don't have enough judges to sit particularly on on complex or serious cases and particularly on cases which form one of the largest elements of the backlog which are sex cases and allegations of rape and other forms of sexual uh, offending you know th those require specially trained judges and they just aren't enough of them so the backlog of those cases is particularly acute because those are the cases where you re there is a real incentive or real premium to be had in terms of justice on getting them into trial quickly you know if, if a victim of rape has to wait two or three years to give evidence that's an extraordinary in my view that's a miscarriage of justice whatever the rights and wrongs of the case and whatever the ultimate verdict there is something seriously wrong with a system that makes anybody wait two or three years to give evidence about something that happened to them and, and and for a jury to be able to consider you know the justice of the case and inevitably victims face a, an uphill battle to remember detail after such a long period of time 
And sometimes those memory features are the sole reason why the defendant may be acquitted. And that, that cannot be right. And of course, some just fall by the wayside, don't they? Yes, and may, many do. I mean, we already know, uh, you know that only 1.6% of reported rapes ever make it uh, into court at all. So a tiny number anyway. But if, if amongst those 1.6%, um, you're seeing hundreds of complainants, many of whom will actually have been victims of these crimes saying I've just had enough you know I've had clients who, who perhaps have been in this country uh, coming from abroad and who have been the victims of these sorts of serious uh, attacks and, and they've said to me look you know I may as well go back to my own country because it's just never going to get resolved uh, and, and I can't just hang around forever with my life on hold waiting for the English legal system to catch up and and you know there are many many cases out there where victims are just saying I'm just it's too much the waiting is too much the lack of information is too much the fact that potentially a defendant who was in custody and would have been in custody if the trial could take place within three or four or five months but they're released on bail because of the delays so that means that victims are in fear because their attacker is on bail purely because there is so much delay in the court, uh, the court system, and and all of these things are just working to the disadvantage of victims and ultimately undermining uh, public confidence in, in in the justice system, which I think is at an all time low anyway. That uh, brings us naturally, I think, to the age of criminal responsibility, which I, is one thing I feel quite strongly about. You have a chapter in your book called Why Children Should Never Be Criminals or Are Never Criminals. In this country, children may be criminalized at the age of as young as 10. Some of us may think that's ridiculously young when most European countries set the minimum age as 14. Uh, you think there's a better way? Yes, most, most do. Most do, and some, as I point out in the book, set the minimum age at 18, which is the same as the age of majority and, um, and the age at which uh, young people assume all of the rights and responsibilities of adulthood and, 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 and certainly in terms of rights that's the case in Britain you know you can't vote until you're 18 and there's a whole range of other kind of civic rights that you that you don't fully uh, engage with until you're an adult and I, and I think it's really as straightforward as this you know if you don't trust someone because of their age to have the maturity and responsibility to make the law in other words to be a voter and to be able to elect politicians who can decide what the law should be, then I don't really see how you can, on, you know, on the other hand, argue that they're old enough to be subject to those laws in exactly the same way as an adult. Of course, the public needs to be protected from a very tiny number of dangerous children, and they are tiny in comparison to the number who are put through the criminal justice system every year. The number of genuinely physically dangerous young people is, is minuscule. But the public needs protection from them. But what the public actually needs it most of all is to ensure that those young people who do find themselves in trouble with the police or being arrested or coming to the attention of the law, of law enforcement and are, are, are pulled away from whatever it is that's causing that, are given access to education and support to see them through whatever trouble trouble in their life is, is putting them in that position and, and can come out of childhood and into adulthood without the rest of their life being blighted by you know actions that that, that you know they took when they just didn't have sufficient maturity to be to be judged as as, as being criminal i mean anyone who has either 10 year old children or 10 year old grandchildren or even knows 10 year old children you know they are just not mature enough 
to understand and process their actions and the consequences of their actions in the way that most adults are. I mean, some adults are, but 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 the, you know, ten-year-olds just are not equipped for that. And so, to put them into a criminal court and, and treat them as if they're an adult criminal, I think it's just abhorrent and it's and, and it's morally wrong. It, in my view, it breaches the United Nations, um, you know, Charter on the Rights of the Child, which which we kind of ignore in this country largely in so many different ways anyway. Um, but but just as a matter of basic common sense, you know, if you if you blight a child's life with the label of criminal at the age of 10 or 11 or 12 or whatever the age may be, you may as well tattoo criminal on their forehead because their life chances will be will be effectively much the same as if you did that. You know, no one would ever give someone a job if they had criminal tattoos on their forehead. And, and you know, they, they live their lives with the same criminal record and the same impacts as if that were the case. And, and, and it just doesn't make any sense. And, and I think it's just a cruel system designed to, you know, genuine, generally to punish those from certain parts of our society and community much more than, than, than those from others. You know, we know that disproportionately it's the children of the lowest socioeconomic groups and in very small pockets of of our urban environments on in the on the whole who are subject to the criminal law most other 10 year olds or or, or children of an old age you know particularly those from middle class families elsewhere never go anywhere near the criminal justice system even though they may make the same mistakes and do the same things in particular in relation to drugs and you know i'm sure we'll, we'll come on to talk about that but you know that you know children experimenting with being in possession of drugs is is common across the entire um you know uh, social spectrum and, and all over our society but only uh, younger predominantly black children in the inner city who tend to get arrested for it and tend to end up with a criminal record for it and 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 their life chances are massively hampered when they're already disadvantaged in so many ways in our education system and, and socially and otherwise so it's just fundamentally to me it's wrong to treat children as criminals and no child should be labeled in that way we should protect the public from dangerous children but even dangerous children should be given an education and opportunity to move into adult life and put their past behind them you mentioned drugs so let's come on to it what are your views about criminalizing drugs well, it's, the, it's probably the single largest policy error that has been made in our society in the past century, because the consequences of drug prohibition in terms of harm to the, those who use drugs from the fact that they buy their drugs at such high costs from dealers with absolutely no idea what they're really taking. And so overdose levels and all the other harms that go with it. You know, drug-related crime, the impact on society from the need to for, for people who are using drugs, particularly highly addictive drugs like heroin and, and crack, um, to, to get more and more drugs and, and have to find hundreds or even thousands of pounds a week. You know, the, the, the amount of the crime wave that's created by, by, by that sort of huge increase in price that's caused by prohibition. You know, and of course, just, just the sheer utter waste of money. Uh, of, of all of the policing and law enforcement and the fact that half or more of our prison population are in some way in there because of drug prohibition, either directly in terms of drug offences or, or, or drug-related crime or, or crime committed because they're on drugs. You know, all, all of these kind of, kind, of, kind of basic kind of common sense points that drug prohibition causes more crime, causes more harm, causes more death 
um, increases the cost of policing and, and our society. And, and of course, we were talking earlier on about the about the huge backlog in the system. When we stripped away drug crime, the system would have plenty of capacity. I mean, you know, it takes up a very large proportion of the business of many Crown Court centres and indeed many magistrates' courts. Um, and, and it's totally unnecessary because there's a, there's a clear path that we could take towards licensing and regulating drug supply, which would, which would protect the health of users, which would dramatically reduce drug-related crime, and which would free up resource in our criminal justice system to deal with things that we really need to deal with, like you know, the, the, the very large number of unresolved uh, sexual offences, as I talked about earlier. You know, it's, it's, it's utterly abhorrent that we've got you know, large drug conspiracy trials taking place in court centres where rape victims are being told, we've got no space for your trial. You know, that just doesn't make any sense when, when we could get rid of all of that and make the world and the country a safer place uh, in, in the process. Okay, I wonder if we can change tack a bit now and talk about unduly lenient sentences, which uh, the current law officers seem to be quite keen on. So we know they can refer cases to the Court of Appeal when they think they're unduly lenient. In one recent case, the Court of Appeal felt it necessary to remark that it was, to say the least, an unusual submission by the Attorney General that the judge fell into error by failing to depart from the guidelines. I wonder how this chimes with your general views about prison sentences and the attitude to them by the government. Well, we've seen our present Attorney General, who, who is sort of get, gets in front of um, the cameras and, and, and general soon as you know, as any high profile sentence in any case and complains that it's too lenient and says that she's thinking about appealing it and you know that 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 sort of politicization of the role of the attorney general as a law officer as you say which is a sort of although they're a minister of the crown that you know they're supposed to exercise independent judgment and and i'm afraid we've seen the Attorney General basically becoming no, no nothing more than a mouthpiece for sort of you know Boris Johnson and Pretty Patel and and and, and not exercising that degree of independence which we've seen in the past. Um, but you're right to point out that that judgment, where the Court of Appeal has said that this is the you know I think they describe it as baffling or confusing or something like that. But when, when the Attorney General is coming to the Court of Appeal and saying we accept that the judge fully complied with the sentencing guidelines and that they took account of all of the relevant aggravating and mitigating features and passed a sentence that was within the guidelines which the judge is required to, 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 to read and pay attention to. But we're saying it's still unduly lenient and the judge was duty bound to go above the maximum level within the guidelines. And the, the course of appeal, I think we're just sitting there reading the judgment, uh, as I have, I wasn't in court, but I've, I've read the judgment. I think I was just sitting there thinking, what on earth is, what on earth is this about? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, you, you can't possibly argue that a judge who, who takes account of everything relevant and passes a sentence within the guidelines is somehow acted perversely and so, so kind of out of, out of the sort of reality of, of the case, that, that, that the cause of appeal should intervene and increase it even beyond the, the, the top of the gun. I mean, I don't think that's ever happened before. I don't think we've ever had a case where the Attorney General has argued that a case within, a sentence within guidelines should have been increased above guideline and the cause of appeal agreed. So it just shows a complete lack of judgment on the part of the Attorney General and, and frankly, a complete lack of independence. And that, that politicisation is quite worrying because, you know, the Court of Appeal have also got plenty of work to do and they don't need to be used as a political football by the Attorney General and the government to try and prove a point about how tough they are on crime in, in inverted commas. 
just bringing populist politics into the courts, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's very sad. We've seen successive Lord Chancellors and, and now successive, um, you know, attorney attorneys general to, to doing the same, you know, that as you say, that sort of, you know, populist rabble-rousing around, you know, criticising judges for a start, openly and publicly, and often in quite scathing, almost personalised terms, rather than accepting that, you know, being a judge is difficult and that the responsibilities are high and that also that judges are required. They can't pass whatever sentence they like just as an emotional reaction to how nasty the case is. You know, they have to look at the sentencing guidelines. Uh, I don't agree with many of them, but but they are what they are and they, and, and they are in place. So judges, you know, really shouldn't be criticised for observing and following guidelines which are imposed upon them from elsewhere. You know, if, if there's to be criticism of guidelines, then, the, you know, and the government wants to increase sentencing levels, which I'm afraid it has done in a number of ways over the last couple of years, then that has to be done openly and publicly by, by legislation um, and, and Parliament, you know, deciding that sentences need to be higher or whatever the case may be. But to criticise judges for doing their job properly, I think is particularly unpleasant when it comes from a government who's got a history of complete disregard for the law and has itself, of course, been found to have broken the law on countless occasions. And, and possibly we might see another load of um, examples of that over the next few weeks with with you know at number 10 you know and it's many many parties when the rest of the country were in severe lockdown we can't wait for the outcome of that no i mean i'm I, i'm not I, I wasn't actually a big fan of the police becoming involved in it because I, I felt that it was a waste of time and public money and and indeed police resource which is yeah. Pretty, pretty scant and I would have much preferred to see the the Grey report just published with all of the photos and videos of whatever went on at these parties and and and, and let the public and, and and Parliament decide what to make of it rather than the police dragging their heels for months and and possibly letting the government off the hook. Now discounts for pleading guilty we know that in order to get the maximum discount for pleading guilty you plead guilty at the earliest possible stage and if found guilty at trial then there's no and there's no discount at that stage sometimes the discount sufficient to avoid prison altogether in your experience does that sort of pressure on a defendant lead to some people pleading guilty to offenses they haven't committed because the risk of a heavy sentence is too great well i've certainly had clients, i've certainly had clients say that to me uh, i've had clients say you know i didn't do it but you know if i can get if i don't go to prison and i can get a, do a deal in inverted commas uh, you know, I'll do the deal because I don't want to take the risk that it goes wrong at trial and I end up going down for, you know, either going down at all or going down for a lot longer. So I've had clients say that and 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 give me, and I have to obviously get them to put that in writing. You know, if they're saying I'm not guilty, but I'm pleading guilty anyway, then, you know, I need to make sure that, the, that that's recorded because I don't want them coming back later and saying, well, I told my barrister I didn't do it. Um, uh, you know, but and that's their choice to do that. But I think I think there is a, a, a significant issue now with um, with the pressure on uh, guilty pleas at the very beginning of the case. So it used to be the case that you would get the full discount, as it's called, the one third discount um, for a guilty plea if you pleaded guilty sort of after you'd had all of the evidence and after it had all been served and after you'd had the proper opportunity to take some legal advice about about what your plea should be and potentially around offering a lesser a plea to a lesser offence or something like that. But now, as you, I think, would 
pointing out, you know, that you have to plead guilty at the very first hearing the magistrate's court to get that full third discount. And that often means, you, you know, it could be the day after you've been charged because, you know, someone could be arrested one day, charged, kept in the police station, taken the magistrate's court the next day, and they've barely spoken to a lawyer. And, and often those who go to police stations are not lawyers in the, in the full sense of the word. They're unqualified people who you know maybe have been on a two-day training course or something so you know to expect people to make these really big decisions particularly on very serious cases uh, where they may be looking at many years in prison uh, the very very first hearing I think is a worrying kind of um, development um, and I think it was much better when the full credit was available up until that first substantive plea hearing you know after service of the evidence and when you know there should in theory at least have been the opportunity to take proper advice because the problem with the current system is that many do plead not guilty or give no indication of plea at the very beginning and by the time they get to that hearing where all the evidence has been looked at and so on they may the, the credit may have reduced to 25 or even 20 percent so so the incentive to plead guilty is much less at that point because the difference between the outcome if they do and the outcome if they lose the trial is 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 a much smaller margin so i i think overall i think it's counterproductive but i think I mean, one of the one of the, the the things that I think would worry me is if we went down the American route, where the the difference between pleading guilty and not guilty can often be not third, not a third as as our kind of maximum discount in theory, but it can be ninety percent. I mean, someone someone could be looking at you know forty years, or they can plead guilty and get four. So you know, you can imagine the pressure in that system for someone who's innocent to say, "Well, if I'm looking at forty years or life without parole, and they're offering me five, and I could be out early, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera, you know, I suspect it's a much greater problem. I don't, I don't think there is a huge problem in our system as yet with completely innocent people pleading guilty just to get that discount on sentence. That's not over my almost thirty years of criminal law. I don't think that's the issue. The issue, in my view, is that people may plead guilty when they had a viable legal defence and just had they, they got no proper advice about it, or they plead guilty to, to maybe to a more serious offence than the one that they really should have pleaded guilty to, because there hasn't been time for the law, for a, for a qualified a lawyer to look at the case properly and to give them some le proper legal advice, you know, and and, he, and and it has to be said in this day and age, you know, that there, you know, legal aid lawyers who deal with the great majority of these cases, criminal cases, are so overburdened and so underpaid that they often don't have physically have the time to to give that level of attention, to give that sort of advice, and they certainly don't in the very early stages. So, you know, all of these these problems kind of come together to create a perfect storm of, you know, bad decision making and, you know, a bit like with the with the magistrates, new sentencing powers and so on, perverse incentives. You know, you, you end up with people, as I say, who've got nothing to lose. I may as well run a trial. If they're only going to give me 10% discount, then I'll take my chances. And then you end up with trials that cause more backlog and all the rest of it. So so I, I think I think there should be really should be a clear principle around guilty pleas is that of course, someone can choose to plead guilty if they wish at the beginning without waiting for the evidence, and they should be able to do that. But I think that the presumption should be that you'll get full discount up until the point that you've had legal advice from a lawyer and, 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 and proper legal advice based on the evidence. Until that point, I think it's wrong to reduce the amount of credit that people get when they plead guilty um, later on the process. 
And that brings me naturally to our last topic, really, which is that there's probably never been a greater need for skilled criminal advocates to represent accused people in the courts. And given the downward pressure on legal aid rates and young barristers leaving the profession because they can't make ends meet, how do you see the future of the criminal bar? I think the criminal bar will shrink over time. Uh, it has shrunk already in, in real terms, as it were. It, 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 looking at the number coming in versus the number going out, the number of pupillages, which is much smaller in criminal law than it was when I started out almost 30 years ago. Uh, I think it will shrink. Uh, and that's partly as a result of those features in terms of funding. And, 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 and it's partly as a result of uh, reduced uh, you know, workloads, uh, and, and it sounds counterintuitive when there's this huge backlog, but because of the smaller number of cases actually getting to trial and going through the system, you know, there's, there's a sort of a, a reduction in overall work available. Um, there's also the issue of many, many cases in the Crown Court in particular are dealt with now by solicitors or by in-house barristers at the CPS in particular. So, so the independent criminal bar has seen you know leakage of, of its work in different directions but I think I think you know economic forces are you know as valid and important in the in criminal law as they are in anything else and it's as simple as this it, you know to the extent that money doesn't flow to particular kinds of work you know there will be a reduction in those willing to service that work and 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 service the work at the rates i mean the criminal bar have announced a, a ballot this week about uh, effectively industrial action uh, because the government won't commit to uh, any particular timetable in terms of addressing some of these huge shortfalls in funding. And so we're going to see potentially criminal barristers going effectively on strike, in the, I suspect, over the next few months. I mean, like 94% already supported some form of action. So all of this, you know, young people I speak to regularly and, you know, aspiring lawyers and um, particularly aspiring barristers, and many of them say, you know, we are just put off criminal law because everyone says it's, you know, there's no money in it and it's so poorly paid now where that ends up is i think there will be a you know we will end up we already have a two-tier system if not a two or three-tier system but we'll end up with a system which which is very similar to the american system which is that you know most people you know 90 percent of the population who can't afford to pay for a lawyer have you know the public defender in america and over here they'll have people on legal aid and those public defenders or legal aid laws have so many cases because you know that's the only way to make ends meet is to take on lots and lots of cases um, that they'll, they'll you know you'll be lucky to get to see your lawyer at all. I mean that's happened in the past recently. You know where people have been on trial for murder and they've not met their barrister until the trial. And you know back back when I started, that was unheard of. You know you would have had three or four or five conferences at least with someone charged with murder. Uh, and now as I say, people are lucky if they see the once. You know and that's quite extraordinary when you think about it. But that's the direction of travel. The direction of travel. I think is that at one end of the market, defendants will have access to their lawyer for a very small amount of time. The case will be very poorly funded. Getting access to expert witnesses and the rest is going to be very difficult because those rates have been cut to the bone. But at the other end of the spectrum, you're going to have, you know, wealthy defenders will have access to the absolute best. And there will be, you know, and there is an elite, elite group of, of barristers uh, and solicitors for that matter, who only act for those who can afford to pay you know uh, substantial fees and and you know I, I sometimes act and often act in those cases and and the, the difference between the resources that we have as a well-funded privately funded legal team defending someone versus for example a co-defendant in the same case who's legal has legal aid funding 
it, there's absolutely no comparison. I mean, it's a bit like a Premier League team playing, you know, fourth division local side from, you know, from 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 Essex or somewhere. I mean, there's just no comparison. There's no comparison in resource. There's no comparison in the sort of numbers that you can have on the team, uh, and there's no comparison in the access you have to expert witnesses. You know, some of my cases for well-known uh, people, and you know, in, even people in public eye, you know, we we might instruct three or four experts, you know, on on a given issue because we, you know, we we can afford it because the client can afford it and they want they want to see what's the best evidence that they can possibly get. Whereas on legal aid, the same case the defendants' lawyers are struggling to get an expert at all, any expert, to even look at the case. And when expert evidence is so important, you can imagine that the disadvantages that are caused to those who can't afford it and the huge advantages to those who can. So I think the, the end result is a smaller criminal bar, probably a large number of people working for very low rates and doing a high volume of work, and a relatively small number working at very high rates, uh, and doing a small a small amount of work, but but you know being able to to do that work in a very different way, and and you know that's that's the direction of travel, that's what we see across the Atlantic, and sadly um, that's the way it seems to be going here. Chris, thank you for sharing your views, which I know will be fascinating to all our listeners, and especially those with interest in criminal law or who have a criminological interest. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Barry. And if any of your listeners want to kind of see any more of my content, I know hopefully that some of them will read Justice on Trial, but they can follow me on uh, on Twitter at Criminal UK. And I also have a YouTube channel, which is particularly of interest to students and people who are aspiring lawyers. I have lots of content on there for them. And of course, uh, people are welcome to follow me on LinkedIn, where again, there's content uh, of all kinds that I post on there about mostly about criminal justice, but sometimes about other things. So I hope, hope anyone, anyone who's interested will, will, will connect up with me and my one of those channels. Thank you for listening to Bain's Law. Listen out for future podcasts where we will continue to discuss issues of interest to the legal community. If there is a professional perspective that you would like to share, get in touch via our website at www.barrybaines.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Bain's Law. We look forward to presenting to you again very soon on Bain's Law.